Good morning, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And we're not so far across town today uh, initially because we have Sybil Morial, Sybil Haydale Morial, with us in studio. And um, Sybil lives almost walking distance from where I do. I'm on Esplanade, she's on Harrison. And um, we've been neighbors both uh, in terms of our homes but also in terms of our politics. Uh, for many, many years. More than we can admit. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Something like, um, I was trying to figure it out the other day. But Maybe it's, 40 it's, years. Yes, it's yeah. about 40 mm-hmm. years. It really is just a little over 40 years. And um, she has put out a most engaging and moving and enchanting book. Um, her memorial, her um Memoir called Witness to Change from Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. And, and so it's both her story, but it's also the story of the world that she lived in as a young girl and, and throughout her life so far. And goodness knows what she has planned going forward because she's always doing so much. Um, I want to start at the beginning of the book because, you know, the... I came here in 1973, full-time. I came here in 72 to work for McGovern, and um, I visited. Tannen first came down here in 1969 for working on Camille, redevelopment of the Mississippi Coast, and so I'd visited a couple times, and it was, of course, beautiful. And, And if you are from New York, you have a very special place in your heart for New Orleans because of the music. So much of the music in New York is derivative of music from New Orleans and because most directly and in influence. So um, I, I had I was smitten. I was romantically engaged in the city. So when I came here, I was oriented towards coming here to live and I came. And um, when I came, the civil rights movement had come and it felt to some extent to me when I came here in 72-3, had gone on a certain level. There certainly was um, an a, a incredible in, an involvement in the public life of the city on the part of the black community in a way that I know was not true before, the civil rights movement. But I had to learn a lot about the civil rights movement, but I never experienced segregation in the South, and um, as it was codified in, in law, there's still segregation in so many ways, and so we, we experience it all the time on, on many different levels, but I hadn't really experienced it, so I always just had to imagine what it was like for a young, I always thought about young children, how horrible it would be to discover your place in the minds of other people who who did not regard you as equals. That always just struck me as coming from my political background, a, a harsh, difficult thing. And in your book, you talk about that. And I want you to tell me uh, about it right now and, and so I can shut up and listen. And um, there was also that... that both the the issue of how you were treated by the white community and also, however, your stature as a middle-class family that, in a way, created that alternate universe that was very special. So that's what fascinated me reading your book. Well, I was born in 1932, and the law of the land was... The races were segregated. So I knew I didn't know any different, except when I got old and we traveled to the north, and I realized there was another world where we were accepted. But um, the strange, the, the unusual thing about our city, New Orleans, is that the neighborhoods were not segregated, as they were in many cities in the north. On my block, there were blacks and whites, upper class or middle class and lower socioeconomic. So I played with children from 
you know, different... Every background. That's right. And so there was no difference, except we went to different schools and different churches. They went one way, and we went the other way. But we came back together in the evening and played. But even so, even when you traveled, like you, you might be on the same school bus with with your friends on the block that you played with. And, and I heard about this from somebody who had lived in my house on Esplanade, a white man that came around to visit us one day um, and, 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 and wanted to talk about the back in the day. And, and he talked about having black friends in the neighborhood. But uh, when you got on the bus... And we didn't ride the bus until we went to high school. In fact, that's when the, the, the relationships fractured, when we became teens and went to high school. We got on the bus. They sat in front of the screen for colored patrons only, and we sat behind the screen in the back of the bus. And we didn't even acknowledge each other as if we didn't even know each other. That, that was a strange, strange feeling. You know, you, uh, here you were best friends in each other's homes, playing, having a good time, and now you're, you're, you're strangers. When, as a young, young girl, you first encountered this, when you first encountered it, the way white people viewed and, and treated you, what was your in, initial, earliest memories of that? Well, you know... Our parents, I mean, my parents and their friends, we, they, they protected us in a, in a sense. They'd, they didn't encourage us to be out there where we would be rejected and humiliated. They created for us a little bubble where we had social activities together, where we, uh, where we were safe, where other parents looked out for us and our parents looked out for them. I think you will read in the... Uh, in the foreword by Andrew Young, he he explains that beautifully. Um, so even though we knew there was always that feeling of you're going to be rejected if you're not careful. And they taught us not to step out and and offer ourselves for rejection and humiliation. And not in, in words. So, there were so many messages from them that were subtle, yeah, very subtle. But at some point, that bubble bursts. You have to you 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 have to go out into the world. You have to get on the bus. You have to go to um, facilities. You have to shop. You have to find out where you're not allowed. And the one that struck me, I had no idea. Again, you try to imagine what other people go through. Post Katrina, it is so hard for me to think about how what the experience of losing your entire home and all your belongings and memories and everything can be. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to even think of it, but you can't even imagine what it's like to actually experience and feel it. To have to sit in the baggage car, that just now, there was a blew wall, me away. There was a wall separating the baggage from the people, and it was half, half of the car. But that's where you... And, as I explained in my book, when when we walked up on the platform, the porter was there directing you. The white people got stepped up, and he said, turn to your left, and I stepped up, and the porter knew my father. He said, please step to the right, and that was the baggage car. And when I looked up, I mean, I knew it, but then I looked looked around and realized we were all Negroes, and that was a term used then, or colored. And... We smiled at each other. It was a comfort to be there together, separated. But Sybil, to be, I mean, I just, I can't, you know, I, I remember the little hurts that I experienced as a teenager when, I don't know, some boy didn't like me as much as I liked him or some, you know, any little slight as a child is so hurtful. But that was our reality, that we, there was nothing we could do about it. It was law. We had to sort of survive in that environment. But, you know, my, there was always hope. You know, my parents would say, it's not, not always going to be like this. So there was that little glimmer that... Of change. Was, that, change that, that, that was a, a comfort, yes. Mm-hmm. When, when did that hope, when did that dream start to become a potential reality 
And, and how did you view your role in it? It didn't become a reality until the Supreme Court decision of 1954 that outlawed segregation in public schools. That opened the door. And I was living in Boston then. I was teaching school in Newton, Massachusetts, and um, was friendly with all of the black students in the surrounding schools, Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Boston College, through our network of sororities and parents that were friendly, professional people who were friendly. And many of us were from the South, and we were so happy to be in the North where we were free to go wherever we wanted to. But we had discussions after that landmark decision. We're going back home. We want to be a part of that change. Every one of us, to the man and woman, we wanted to come it's back kind home. Of like and Martin Luther King was one of them. He it, was it's kind of like, in a way, how we had this huge influx of, of um, people who, New Orleans expats who had left New Orleans before the storm, who craved to come back to be a part of the recovery of the city. Right. It's, it's pretty much the same. When you came back, tell me, tell me about how that, your psychology of, of coming back and, and, and what you had to at some point had said, okay, I cannot accept this anymore. And again, the Supreme Court decision empowered that in a way, but still, um, you're still in segregation, right? Yes. You, still have, you still have well, <clears throat> separation. At the time, I was teaching in Newt, Massachusetts, which is regarded still as one of the best uh, school districts in the nation. And so it was, and I gained tenure. So, you know, professionally, I was very comfortable. But this was far beyond that. You know, we, we, this is a chance for us to seek justice and equality. And that's what drove me home. But another thing that was an impetus, I came home that summer, 1954, and re my future husband at a book club. Incidentally, we established that book club because we could not join the book club at the New Orleans Public Library. So we formed our own. It was two, two years before when I was a student at Xavier. And we, it was wonderful because we could select our own books. And that night, there was a book meeting. I came back in town. That night, the book was W.E.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk. And that's when Dutch and I met and we talked day in and day out about the Supreme Court decision and what is this going to mean? Is it, you know, it'll, will it be over in September? Will the schools be integrated? How will this happen? We had no idea how the change would take place. And that was the beginning of our relationship hmm. and the beginning of my involvement so in you, the change. You, so your yeah. romantic relationship evolves out of your social and political Absolutely. interests. Absolutely. Uh, how yes. interesting. And then yes. that shapes your whole life. Yes. That yes. shapes your mm -hmm. whole life mm -hmm. because that would never change. No. Right. To this day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... Again, when when leading up to the the fifty four decision, what was going on as that was coming coming down? That had to be a a very very tense moment in the sense of the fears of white people, right? Well, you know, we we were always, I guess, prepared for failure in in that in that time. Here was a Supreme Court decision about to come down. Was it going to happen? Um, several things came into play. First of all, Earl Warren was Chief Justice. Earl Warren had been political. He was he had been Governor of California, so he had a whole different style than many of them who came from a lower bench, from a lower court. Um, so he got unanimous support. That was the wonderful shock, really. In the court. In the court. All nine justices voted And those for justices, it. let's see, so 1954, who was president? Um, 
Was it a Republican? Sure. Wait, 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 wait. Let's see who was president. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment. I, tell, uh, I've got to uh, um, tell Olivia uh, Martel to, to look up I'll tell who you was in president minute. in 1954. If, if I could just think for a minute, <laughs> I will. I can't remember. It was Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Yes. So it was Republican. Yes, So probably most of the, or judges. many of the judges were Republican? Well, some had been appointed by Roosevelt. Uh, some so by Russell Truman, Holmes. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And Truman, okay. Yeah. So it may have even been a majority Democrat. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it happens, and y'all are trying to figure out what this is going to mean. Right. And, and remember, Orleans, too, that Dutch, had, my husband, had just graduated from law school, the first black to graduate from LSU. So that was, you know, uh, a big thing. And um, But what happened is that Automatically, the law was not, it was the law of the land, but every state had to repeal the segregation laws. Every state had to go through that. Wow. So, um, my husband was a part of that. He was in the law firm with uh, A.P. Turo, but when Thurgood Marshall, the lead attorney in the case, and Constance Baker Motley came down to strategize how to repeal the state laws, Dutch was a part of that working with legal giants, and he, was, he wasn't he was 30 years old. Hmm. So what was your stance at the time? What was your role? Of course, you have a couple of babies by then. I did, and that <laughs> kept me home, but it didn't yeah. keep me. I was very interested. Um, we married and came back. Well, we spent a year in Baltimore. He was in the Army. And then we came back home, and he immediately was you know, practicing law, and I had two children in succession. Couldn't wait for him to come home to tell me what was happening on the ground until at one point I said, this is not enough for me. I need to be out there. So the first thing I did, it was what I could handle, was I, I became active with the Urban League Guild, which was a women's auxiliary to the Urban League. And then I really... That's so interesting yeah. that that was your point of entry, and now your son is head of the Urban League Absolutely, in America. I mean, yeah. That must have been, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, uh, so that mm-hmm. must have been something when he became the president of the Urban League. So I decided, you know, my girlfriends and I, we had a little group that we did small charities, you know. And we decided there were organizations that were doing voter registration, and that was a really long, drawn-out, humiliating experience for black people. To, to go through the process of becoming a registered voter. And there were other organizations, the NAACP and others, some of the churches that were doing that. But we were young women who, most of us were teachers. We had young children, so our time was limited. You know, we had to do it when it was a good time for us to, to leave our children. So we, we established, uh, I became the first president of the Louisiana League of Good Government, and that's what we did. We went in predominantly black, black neighborhoods, in churches, which is one of the few places where we were all, always welcome, and went through this process. Which, of, of getting people Of getting to people registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And it, it required a, appropriate identification, and they would change it. The laws constantly, the rules. It required a literacy test. They had to read the preamble, which is has many difficult words, and when you're nervous, it's not that easy. And you had to take a citizenship test. So you had to go through all of that with people who had been held back all their lives, but who had this burning desire to vote and have their voice Were heard. Were white people required to do all of those things? Yes, too? but you know what? They, they sailed through. They, you know, they, they mean, I don't know. I know when I went to become a registered voter, when I was yet to be 21 then. Uh, I filled out the forms, and he looked at it, and he said, well, you have, here, your eyes are, are brown. Your eyes are black. I said, my eyes are brown. He wanted to insist it. He was trying to humiliate me and make me back down. But I didn't. But just think of the people who don't have been intimidated that by yes, that. Yeah. Yes. And they were told, you're dumb. You, why are you here? You can't read. You, you don't need to vote. You know. You heard those stories from yes, people. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because again, y- you came from a, a, a special group of people. Yes. And um, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the history of race in America is that before the Civil War, there were slaves. 
um, but they were free people of color. Mm-hmm. And then, as I understand it, and correct me if, I, if my understanding of history is not accurate here, but after this, the uh, Civil War, um, the I think it was called the Cold Noir that affected New Orleans that gave a special status to free people of color. That's gone. Well, there was there was Reconstruction, which lasted maybe twenty years. Right, yeah. and then even less than twenty, I think. Right. And then after Reconstruction, that's when it becomes so rigid. Uh, it, the uh, separate but equal law in eighteen ninety six. And so, really. Uh, Privileges were lost, even though, again, you you were born in what year? 1932. So uh, here you are growing up in the 30s, quite a long time since Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're still dealing with, um, you know, this very, very restrictive Mm -hmm. universe that that lasted just incredibly long. Right. So, you know. And then there were things happening in other places. There were lynchings and people, blacks were killed for for no reason, no provo- provocation. It was that wasn't happening in New Orleans. Wasn't well, not really, not 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 in the sense in, of a lynching, but right. there were other discriminatory elements in the justice system that yes. were virtual. But there were lynchings in Louisiana. Yeah, yes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So this this period, um, you know, and 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 living with it and accepting it, and then. The tipping point comes, and it's no longer accepting, and it's challenging it all. What a huge moment that had to be! And we didn't know how long it would take for us to push like this, to uh, to battle in the courts, to boycott the stores, to negotiate to get things done, to get the the screens off the bus. Um, it was it was step by step. It was not. Easy, and we just plugged along till we got to the next level, the next level, and then in 1964, when Lyndon Johnson was president, the Civil Rights Act passed, and that was the next milestone that took us to the next level. By the time I get here, I come in, and Moon Landrew is mayor, and. I'm working from a government, so I'm dealing with people like Lolas, Eli, and um, uh, David. Um, I'm so bad with Dennis. Me. Dennis mm-hmm. and um, uh, Bob Tucker, mm-hmm. and these are part of my world in a way that, even more so than in New York, where I'm from, um, were. That they were just my universe. Mm-hmm. I just took that for granted. Mm-hmm. And they sent me to Aretha Castle Haley. Mm-hmm. And I've told, I think I've told this story before, maybe not on, on the air, but she was my, um, I, I was the state coordinator for McGovern, right? I remember. You know, and I, I chose to do that over going to work in Texas, number two under Bill and Hillary. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, also, the only states that they actually gave women to run were Rhode Island, Delaware, oh, Maryland. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So there was discrimination there against mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. even by McGovern, the big liberal. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I chose to come here. Tannen was here. And um, I, I mean, I just, there was, when I come in, you already have very powerful black organizations. You have. Um, black people in high positions in city government. Um, I'm running a campaign where my partners are, um, you know, mixed, both white and black, but significantly black. I had no, it just, it was a totally different universe from what you had gone through. So, you know, again, every time, every once in a while, I just stop and think about how just before I get here, really, within Five, six, seven years, it was a totally different world. Absolutely. The change was so dramatic. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that moment in time was sort of a, a halcyon moment in a sense. There was still all kinds of things that had to be dealt with that were wrong. But I feel like we've backtracked. We have. 
terribly. And in some ways, I I, I noticed uh, when I wanted to look up and understand better the origin of the expression Jim Crow, which I've heard and I've known but forgotten and and then there was a book by a woman uh, about how we have in in mass incarceration we have Jim Crow again, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah we've we've you know and all this voter rights stuff that's happening around the country yes. and this terrible um, the the actions of the Tea Party are so reminiscent, aren't they? To Jim you? Crow, the shadow of Jim Crow is hovering over us today, 2015. And it really, we fought so hard. But I always say you can change the law, but you don't change hearts. And maybe, maybe it's agree with that. Do you agree? Do, do, uh, hearts have changed, especially amongst the younger generations. The, 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 the millennials, they are totally different from even my generation. My generation, you, you either had people, when I say my Whoops, what am I saying here about my age? <laughs> but my generation, we were dealing with this in a, in a different way from you. A lot of my schoolmates were coming to the South to work on all the things that you just talked about. And um, I was uh, very conscious of of the change, um, but not really understanding what was before. But it, it just seems like we we fought so hard. We fought so hard, and we made a lot of progress. But this is an undoing. It is. Are you surprised? Yes, to the degree that it is, I am. Yes. And and do you feel like the um, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement is um, a sufficient reaction and challenge? to what's happening or what is going to be the tipping point to bring this back, to correct it again? How how are we going to get out of this mess? Just like we didn't know how we were going to fix it before. I'm not sure how we're going to fix it now. But I think think there's outrage on the part of people of goodwill that this is happening, that every time you open a newspaper, there's a young black man that is shot by law enforcement. Why is that? You know what is what is going on in the psyche of 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 the policeman? Uh, why why are our boys so vulnerable? Uh, I think you know why are the schools why do the schools continue to be ineffective? Why are we not putting resources into the schools where these kids can learn? They can learn and become productive members of our society. That's that's one of the keys to educate our kids, give them quality education. And the education, you know, it's funny, we're, we're just barely trying to figure out how to catch up and make good a mess that has accumulated really since since integration because the solution for many white people was to just pull out exactly. of the school system until you had a resegregation right back then. And then you pulled out the resources in the black schools. And then you pulled out the resources. Mm-hmm. Now we're facing this, I, I emphasize this a lot on my show, uh, an utter, a huge revolution in the economy. And that's what annoys me so much about the debates that I have to listen to mm. that are all about frivol not frivolous, but just issues that are not germane to what is really at the heart of the matter, which is the technological revolution mm-hmm. we're in. And so kids in the schools now have to be educated have for be. jobs in that, because the reason for the unemployment is not that people don't want to work. They just don't have the trained. skills for that's this. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. And um, this is just part one, everybody, of of this conversation that Sybil and I are having because we, we haven't even gone back to some of the the political work in, mm. in the years in between. So we sort of jumped from from then to now. But we're going to go back in and dig some more. And, mm. and um, you're coming back on the 19th of November. We're going to – I'm going to try to um, reserve. I always have other things happening in the city culturally that I want to make sure people know about, and that's why I have other people in the room with me. Um, now, but um, 
uh, we have more to talk about. Yes. And, and um, I look forward to it. I do too. We've been talking with Sybil Morial, you all. One of, as I said in my newsletter, in the corrected one, because I, I've left out in the first one that you were one of the first people I ever met. Not in life ever, but when I came here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you were a, you were part of my uh, you were very much a part of my early experience and understanding of the city. And um, you know, again, I was so impressed by you and Phyllis Landrew and and um, uh, Gloria Kavakoff and. Um, uh, uh, Rosa Calla, baby. Rosa, and and also, um, uh, I'm just so terrible with my memory of names, but all the women that I interviewed when I did that series on women in politics, Mm -hmm. they gave me such a sense of empowerment and strength and and the the beauty and effectiveness of your work in in the political transformation, not just the racial justice issues. And those women were another component that became a part of solving this problem at the time. We're going to talk about more of that, more Mm -hmm. of that too. November 19th, Sybil will be back, and um, thank you so much. So the book, Witness to Change, that she has written is, is beautiful, folks. It is just beautiful. You need to get it. And to, there's a salon this weekend at the Musée de Few People of Color. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me date and time? Yes, uh, on Sunday at 3 o'clock, the Musée, which is on Esplanade and Cross um, Street. Uh, Rocha right, right next to McDon- John McDonough High School. High School. Mm-hmm. 3 o'clock, I'm going to do a reading. I'm going to talk about the genesis of the book, and I'll be signing. So please come. Y'all, mm-hmm. be there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Civil, thank you so much. See you soon. Sign my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, ladies, um, we now are going to move into the cultural arena, as you all know I like to do so much, and we are going to talk about a new production in town that talks about a, a different kind of challenge that people often go through who have to deal with the reality of impending death in a family, even if it is years to come, there is, a, and we all have a sense of the finality of our lives, but not in our young years. And um, I'm talking with two people who I'm going to let them introduce themselves so I don't mess up their names, uh, who have done a production based on a book called Facade. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, exactly. Um, that um, tells us uh, about how a family struggled with a child that had um, cystic fibrosis. I was hoping that I was right in remembering that it was cystic fibrosis. And most youth who are born with cystic fibrosis do not live into adulthood. Am I? Well, I think that the technology is such now that that um, youth with cystic fibrosis are living into young adulthood. So there has been an extension of the lifespan, but it's still not. Um, past young adulthood. Right. So, first of all, introduce yourselves. I'm Amy Alvarez, and I'm playing Noel Wade, the mother of the young man, uh, John Wade, who died of cystic fibrosis. And I'm Natasha Raymer. I'm artistic director of Moscow Nights, our <clears throat> cultural organization here in a big metropolitan area. And I am director of the play, and also I, I wrote the script based on the book of William, William Wade named Facade. Tell me, first of all, about how the book, book came to be, and I assume that the, this is a true story. It's a true story, yes. And um, I read this book, and I... I was amazed and liked this book, and I never thought that I will do something. And um, I wrote in my program that in 2011 I was in Lithuania, and I read this book from the train from Shaolai to Klaipeda to in the Baltic Sea. And I, I was on the way to meet my friend, and I didn't know that he became very famous composer. And when I came to his house, he gave me to listen a lot, a lot of music of him, what he wrote for the theater. And one is music I loved very much. And that's it. And I read this book, and book and the music came together in my mind. And only one year later, 
uh, we're friends with this uh, after uh, Mr. Bill Wade and his uh, wife, Noel. And she is originally from Hammond, Louisiana. Uh, oh. Yes, she was. Wow. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So they connect, they coming to, they came to New Orleans many times. So, but we met in, in, um, in the end of 2012, and we're sitting around the lunch, and I just told about the book and how I like this book and everything. And, and after several weeks, I got a call from Mr. Bill Wade. He said, Tasha, if you would love to make a play, if you really think that this could be possible, please do the play. <laughs> wow. So that that's so interesting. I often tell the story about how certain – I do a lot of art events as well – and um, these little moments in coffee houses or over dinner or walking in the park yeah. that lead to a major creation are just amazing. So it was it was just a serendipitous moment that you had with with um, your, your this in, in this conversation. Um, Amy, to, to play the mo- to to be the mother of a child with a um, terrible disease really that is going to end your life early that has to be so difficult and then to play it i can't you know i i can only imagine what families who are coping with a chronic illness and fatal illness with their children are dealing with um as a parent myself i found myself uh, thinking a lot about what it must be like to to get that kind kind of diagnosis and how devastating that is, and um, it's I I would never dream of saying I know what it's like because I don't think until you've you've walked in those sho- shoes you know, but um, but you sort of walk in those shoes. On I stage. do I do, and uh, so it I think what is very beautiful about the play to me is that. Um, it's about a family who's coping with the chronic illness and loss of their son, yes, but I think it's about something bigger than that, and it's about their faith journey and how they their faith has helped them cope with this devastating loss. And um, I think that's a that's a message that speaks to so many people, no matter what their the troubles they're dealing with in their lives. But but when you um, Natasha first were reading the book. Uh, you must have been struck by the courage of the young man himself. Of course, of course. I was amazed the young man, uh, little John, you know, Wade, he was so intelligent, so smart. He wrote unbelievable poems. He was an artist also, you know, with himself. He had sense of humor and, and everything, and I you could imagine how the parents enjoyed another you know him like a a talented 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 child so they had to just take so much um what is the word sustenance and uh i don't know if not satisfaction but they just had to um live with that moment of appreciating him and experiencing him and enjoying him and making sure that he could enjoy his life as much as possible and just yes. and just stay right in that place. Right, right. I uh, saw a quote one time a long time ago. Uh, I was reading an article about someone whose who's child had died and and she said, you know, what? All, uh, I realized that what I had to do was love my child today and... Um, that is really all we can, any of us can do is love our child today because nobody knows what the future holds. Um, I think that the book and the play really, really highlight what a rich and beautiful life John had. He, you know, he was so creative. He wrote these beautiful, beautiful poems that are highlighted in the book and in our play. Um, he was deeply insightful, um, it's clear. It was clear to me when I read the book, and then also in in learning the script that he, as he grew up, he became more and more aware of what his circumstances were, and that informed his his art. He he wrote play. He wrote poems as school assignments, as as sort of everybody does. But then he took that up upon himself to write poems 
to express his own life and his own ideas and his own pain that he did just for his own understanding. And so he was... Uh, it's it's clear when you look at the pictures and and our our play is very multimedia. We've got some um, pictures of John and, and some beautiful music, as as Natasha said. That you know he was a he was a a little boy and he was a teenager and and he was funny and he was goofy, but he also had a, a profound side to him that I I don't think you see with many thirteen fourteen year olds, and you see that in his poems. Here's one of the poems. Yes. Um, Amy, why don't you read sure. it? I, I was going to read it, but yes, I'm sure. Yes, I would be happy to. Yes. Absolutely. So um, this is the, the namesake poem of the, of the play. It's called Facade, and it, it's a short uh, verse, and it says, um, Failing to find the answers I seek, I ask life's creator about life's peak. Answering, he said, death is a facade, Hiding the glorious end that exposes life's shadow. Mm. He's yeah. 14 when he wrote that. Yeah. And, and, and father discovered these poems after, he de- after his death. Oh, yes. And this is what he coming and he said, he left us a message. And mother said, what message? And he giving this poems they never heard but father had feelings that yes. the father yes. had feelings that after three months of John died something something hidden here and something message here something what he could find where what is my son what he could and, yeah. and the message coming it's unbelievable yes. it's mm. unbelievable for us for actors you know yes. when we rehearse when you listen and also this boy wrote so interesting poems one of the poems is just it was four months before he died he yes. said I, I feel the darkness coming and darkness mm-hmm. around me and when I open eyes but light also present darkness and light yes. and suddenly I see some man and ask who you are and they said friends family and they try but darkness wants to take them away but they're trying to stay here so they probably were these creatures who help him to go to another world mm-hmm. so, mm. Natasha um, who are you <laughs> and, what are, and what are you doing? And what are you doing in New Orleans? And what is Moscow Nights? I mean, you know, I have Russian heritage. Yes. In part. Oh, yes. On my father's side, he, um, his family. Uh, I, I, I got to do my homework on it to know exactly. His his mother was Hungarian, but his father was Russian from the Pale, and he was the mayor of a, of a Jewish town. Mm-hmm. He was Jewish. My mother is Catholic, and she was from Czechoslovakia. So, um, but you know, obviously, you you were raised and, and grew up in Russia. Uh, yes. So tell me, tell me how you got here. <laughs> yes, I grew up and I I was born in Kazakhstan, and then I my mother brought me to Ukraine, where in the little shtetl, Jewish shtetl, my grandmother was, and and she survived ghetto and holocaust and she was saved by the ukrainian woman so my mother grabbed me and came to to little state of shargaret my father korean so i have mixed korean blood <laughs> jewish blood so i like like so many of us in america yes and mongrel <laughs> yes and then my we we came my father got a job in lithuania we came to lithuania so my uh, from the five years old i used to live in ukraine uh, in lithuania where i graduated from high school musical school and i was dreaming about theater so i escaped uh, musical college i was already in the and I escaped to Moscow and trying to go to State Institute for Performance Art. So I was accepted when I was 17 years old. <laughs> it was very, very strange for everybody, but this is what happened, and I was so lucky. This is, was my big, big 
luck in my life because I was. Uh, there, there's 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 a theme that's coming through, and I don't know if you heard the prior interview uh, very much, and you probably don't know that much about Sybil Morial, but um, you know she lived through the era of of Jim Crow segregation in the South, and and the civil rights movement till today here in New Orleans in the South, and um, when you read her book, she talks about you know the courage of dealing with very difficult obstacles and clearly um, you had to move through that as well and uh, on more than one level clearly um, and but uh, again here you are in New Orleans and and I, I need to understand what Moscow Nights is because you know honestly I have to admit that I hadn't heard of it before um, Valerie Robinson a friend of mine who does public relations had told me about it and um, Facade, uh, Musings on Life and Coping with Death, is being performed this weekend, Saturday, at 2 p.m. at the Jefferson Parish East Bank Regional Library, and then uh, on Sunday, November 1st, at 5 p.m. at the Rain Memorial United Methodist Church at 3900 St. Charles Avenue. How, how did this come to be presented here in New Orleans? And again, how did you get here? Uh, I got here. I I got here because I came to a man, uh, Samuel Raymer. He's a professor of Russian history at Tulane University. Uh, I met him in Moscow in 1980, but um, and then. You know, first time, and but I was married this time, and I had a child, so I came by invitation of my husband. I emigrated, and I came to United States. And two years I lived in New Haven, Connecticut, and my life didn't work. You know, with my change, uh, change yeah, change. I came, comes. yeah, change came, come. I came to New Orleans to Sam Raymer, and I started to live here because my occupation is theater. So I started to create different things. And in 1999, I, I, found, I found Moscow Knights. So Moscow Knights, non-profit cultural organization, and we promote Russian culture. So this is first project, which is a little bit standing outside of my program, usually like Russian Winter Festival, Chekhov, you know, some concert and different things. Mm-hmm. And Amy, how did you come to this? And and I, I wish that I had the rest of the show to talk to you. I still have another person to bring on. It's so that's the one frustrating thing about only having an hour. And I, I'm just so undisciplined because I love to hear about how people live their lives and create and do things for the rest of us. So when you create something like this play with music, which I didn't uh, expect, I didn't know about, and that's so exciting, and and all kinds of really creative people involved in the production. Yes. How did you come to this, Amy? And and uh, so I've been living in New Orleans for 25 years, and I first met Natasha about 10 years ago. We did um, a, we took a class together at Yale, and uh, that's how we met. And then a couple of years ago, she asked me to play the evil stepmother in a Russian production of Cinderella, which was big fun. Very and different from the role you play in this one. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So playing the role of, of the mother of, of a child that, that that's you, you have to live with that impending death. Yes. Is, is, is such a <sighs> it's heavy, it, heavy. It is heavy, but you know this play has. It, I think it's very inspiring. I think it. I mean, it's the subject matter is sad, but I think that people are going to come away from the play feeling very inspired, very inspired, very refreshed. It's a two-person show. Uh, the other, the other actor is Scott Jefferson, and he plays my husband. So it's it's just two people. The show runs about forty-five minutes with no intermission, and it's free admission. It's that's by, so important. It's by donation only, and the yes. donations go to the um, Cystic Fibrosis Society of New Orleans. That's right? fantastic. Yes, and the writer will come on Sunday, November first. So please come oh, to see Sunday, yes. November first. The Rain Memorial United Methodist Church, 3900 St. Charles Avenue. I'm sure you're in NOLA.com, so you all can go into NOLA.com and and, and find this when you don't remember what you heard (laughs) (laughs) some time ago. Oh, uh, Natasha and Amy, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry I don't have more time, but I'm I'm excited to bring on my next guest, who I think is is hearing me and is on the phone. Um, Brian Lee, are you there? 
Yes, I am. Oh, Brian, I'm so um, grateful that you could spend a few minutes with us, and I'm, I'm sorry about the timing, but um, no it, it's um, it's it's such an interesting and important thing that you have been doing with your life. Um, and again, uh, it seems like we're in this show talking about so many challenges, but as an African-American architect, you have been working to encourage people to come into your prof- profession, young African-American men and women. And I, I, I'm so, um, I think it's so important, especially in, in New Orleans, where architecture is such an important part of our world in every sense, in the quality of life and, and the economic uh, life. So tell me, what I want to know the trend. I want to know, is it getting better? Because, of course, when I first came here, I think there were maybe two black architects in the city, and now that's changing. Yeah. But give me, yeah. give me a sense of what's happening and, and what your role is. Yeah, so, so essentially the trend since uh, the early 1900s has been about 1%, and we've been rising in the range of a percentage, uh, not a percentage point, but a 0.1 percentage rate over the course of the last 10 years. But we floated at about 1% up until 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. And so we're only incrementally uh, getting gains, and that's across the country. So when you talk about 1%, just the equal representation of, of people of color within the field really implies that when you're building spaces that, uh, that people have to live in on a day-in and day-out basis, and you have no consideration for the kind of continual cultural condition that is the life of New Orleanians or people from Detroit or from New York or wherever they may be from, uh, if, you, if you ignore their cultural condition, then uh, you're building spaces that don't inherently attach to them, that don't connect. In the same way that a painting may connect to certain people uh, in different ways or a play, may, as you just, just talked about, uh, may connect to certain people in certain ways, uh, you really have to think about what people are in their spaces in order to understand how to do that. And so we, in this particular state, one of the statistics we love to, to rattle off is that uh, as of three, or three years ago, there were 16 African-American licensed architects in the state of Louisiana. Now, that's, that's wow. the state. Yeah. So in, in New Orleans alone, you know, we're 60%, so 300,000 African-American uh, people within us, uh, sorry, a little less than that, uh, in the city alone. Uh, there's an unequal distribution of, of that of that work, but more importantly, of the cultural representation that that implies uh, better spaces for for uh, people of color. And it, it's 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 such a uh, it's 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 such a disconnect from again the reality of how important architecture is in the city, and um, I, I, I not only in architecture but urban planning and engineering yeah. everything about our built and um, environment, our infrastructure, Mm -hmm. landscape, Mm -hmm. all of it. And yet the builders and Mm -hmm. the people who plant the plants, these are African-Americans. And and every single time I encounter people in the trades, I I think about they could have been an architect, they could have been an engineer, Mm -hmm. they could have been Mm -hmm. an urban planner. So, So what is it, what is key now to encouraging young folks to understand their opportunities and that they can become mm-hmm. architects, engineers, urban planners. This is something that I think is yeah. so critical. Yeah, so the key is really kind of combining or whatever your passion is to a more distinct uh, relationship to the, to, to the manifestation of that passion, right? So about healthcare and community design, right? There is, a, there is a physical thing that represents your passion, and you can tap into that through architecture. It gives you agency. It gives you, uh, it gives you a way in which you, you can alter and uh, assist your community in a way that is not provided of the profession, right? So we, we always like to say in our, in our project pipeline, which is our youth mentorship program, um, is that we say architecture is the hardware to the software of life. And so when you talk about the inherent connection between the two, it really is this physical representation of this this uh, social system that has to work and flow through and operate in this hardware. And so we've got to be conscious of it. We've got to be deliberate about it. Uh, and we've got to understand that 
not every system works the same. And so when you're talking about disinherited or disenfranchised communities, you need to understand what that community actually is and how they use space rather than saying this house is available for everyone uh, and, and that house will, will fit everyone. There's a, I'll tell you one quick little story. I had a professor back in college that said to me, uh, he, was, he was on a research assignment in the 60s in uh, Alabama, and he said, okay, 80% of the white people that I know go through the front door of this house. Do a little research. 80% of the black people go through the side of the house, and he had no idea what that meant. And for me, it was clear, right? Like, I still go through my grandmother's, the side of my grandmother's house, or the back. And um, it's vestigial, right? It's, it's from slavery. It's from yeah. um, Jim Crow. It's from these kind of systemic laws, these social laws that impacted physical space. Uh, and so that is inherent to how we operate. And so it doesn't mean that you change a side door. It means that you, you may give more prominence to that door. You may apply a different use because it has a different meaning uh, to, to a certain subset of people. Or, or somehow make that front door feel mm-hmm. more welcoming. Exactly. More hospitable. And um, so let, let, let me ask you this question because I, we don't have a tremendous amount of time. I'm going to have mm-hmm. you back, Brian, because we have a lot more to talk about also in terms okay. of what you're doing with the Arts Council and, and with um, uh, other things in, in your life. But um, okay. here you are. You are a student in high school. Um, let's say your father may have been a, a, a mason. He may have been a you know, a bricklayer, he might have been a carpenter. Um, you're interested in building, you like to build things. Um, you've thought about architecture. I actually thought about architecture. I wanted to be an architect and I chickened out because I was not a good math student and I yeah. had the impression that math was important. I probably made a mistake, but I also yeah, didn't have did. the money for five <laughs> years of college versus four years. But yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, what what would you tell that young person that, that that boy or that girl who has an interest in the houses around them and the buildings around them about how they can think about their possible career and what what steps do they need to take literally to to advance that certainly certainly so so the first step is to find find a program so it doesn't necessarily have to be ours we we try to give as many people an opportunity to have access to a program that teaches uh, social justice through design and architecture, but there are uh, three or four other architecture programs in the city. So find a connection point that allows your students, or if you're a high school student, uh, that allows you to reach out and experience the different facets of architecture. No one career path is so monolithic that you can't find a niche. So if you like to draw, then you can draw. If you like to do computer animation, guess what? You can do computer animation. If you like the really, really refined details, you can do that. And so the, the thing that you want to do is to find a program A and then, and then find the thing that you're most passionate about within that and, and, and talk with the professionals around you to see where you can find your niche within this particular uh, profession. And, and, and I would yeah. say a, 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 a student needs to have the courage to just literally pick up the phone, right, Certainly. and call that person. Yeah. You, you go in the Internet, you see uh, who's doing what, um, and and uh, any student can do this in school now. Thank goodness we've gotten that Certainly. far. And and then and say, oh, okay, maybe I need to go talk to, oh, uh, Ray Manning. Go talk yeah. to Brian Lee. Go talk to um, one of the professors in the architecture program at Tulane or at at uh, LSU. There's no reason why you can't pick up the phone. People actually like to be asked for advice on how to enter their career. That's so le- true. Yes. So true. But, I, I, so one of the things we also ask our students to, to, to do first time we sit down with them is we ask them how many of them are already architects. And clearly none of them are. So the idea is that you continue to ask questions. You don't, don't, you're not supposed to know everything. You should take honor and pride in asking the question because that is part of not, not only life, but, but it's specifically a part of what we do in architecture. What is your practice about, Brian, before I let you go? Because we're almost out of time. And as I said, I'm going to have you back, but I just want people to know who I'm talking to. Yes. So I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? I didn't hear it. Uh, Well, you know, I think what I better ask you is this. You have a conference in town right now, correct? Certainly. Yes, I do. Is it at all open to the public? 
So the expo and some of the events on the on Saturday will be open. Um, so there's a grad fair, and then there's a few other uh, expo pieces that will be open on Saturday. So if people want to stop by, it's the Noma Conference at the Sheraton uh, in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. So Noma, in this case, stands for the National Na- Organization of Minority Architects, Architect. not our Noma Museum here. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted yeah. to make National sure people were clear on that. So they can stop by. What are the hours and where exactly the again? The hours are eight eight. 30 to 5 o'clock, and if there's an event that you want to join in, there's a registration desk right up front, and you can meet us on the second floor. Um, those of you out there who are thinking about this at all, please do that, and uh, Brian, um, we'll be in touch, and I'm going to have you back, and we're going to talk more about Absolutely. New Orleans architecture and your role in it. Thank, Thank you, you so everybody. Um, you know, it was a hard show because I couldn't stop talking with people like Sybil, so um, I will see you next week. Crosstown Conversations, Gene Nathan, WBOK.